Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 80th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Matthew Blocky. Matthew is a 30-year-old financial advisor with a niche practice of serving physicians and retirees and has grown to nearly $70 million in assets under management and $800,000 of revenue in just eight years since he started his career. What's unique about Matthew, though, is that he's built his financial planning-centric practice by starting out as, at a major life insurance company, Northwestern Mutual, but has quickly evolved his business from starting out with nearly 100 transactional insurance clients per year to a hyper-focused practice that's aiming to grow with just 15 affluent clients per year instead. In this episode, Matthew talks in detail about how he got started and survived in the early years by trying to focus on engaging in the right activity from the start, the networks he tapped out of the gate just to get some initial traction, the way he leveraged LinkedIn to expand his network to reach new prospects, and how he learned the importance of being professionally persistent and always following up with prospects at least three times before giving up. We also talk about the way that Matthew differentiated himself as a 20-something advisor working with retirees, how that evolved into two niches working with retirees and young physicians, the unique and non-traditional advice services he provides, particularly to his young doctor clients to distinguish himself and build a connection. And why it's so important to not just offer what we traditionally consider financial planning services to clients, but what it is that they are really, truly stressed about that keeps them up at night. And be certain to listen to the end where Matthew talks about how having coaches and finding mentors has helped to shape his own career in the early years, the importance of learning about and knowing yourself and finding your own strengths, and why you have to be only slightly better than the competition to come out exponentially ahead in your business. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Matthew Blocky. Welcome, Matthew Blocky, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm excited for this episode because – so I, I've written a bunch over the years about how I think the advisor career path is changing. You know, it, it used to be that you – Basically, you, you, you came into a product company, insurance or investments, you learned to sell stuff. And then if you were good at that later, you got to become an advisor and, and move up and do more. And, and now increasingly, it seems that like, people just don't want to do that. They, they want to be an advisor from day one, don't necessarily want to be responsible for business development and getting their own clients either at all or at least not from the, from the start. But you actually followed what, what I guess I would still call the, the traditional career path. You, joined a major insurance company, you were responsible for getting your own clients from day one, and then got your CFP and your CHFC and your RICP early on, and, and now are eight years in and running a successful advisory practice and and fall into that classic millennial bucket where supposedly millennials don't want to do this anymore, but but you did. And and so I'm I'm excited to have you on the podcast just to talk about that that path and that journey of building from scratch and what that looks like in today's world. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you having me on, Michael, and I'm excited to hopefully share some value with your listeners. I remember back to episode two, the interview with Ron Carson, really took a lot of takeaways from that and have since joined his coaching program and just attended the Excel conference and had tremendous takeaways from that. So just never would have 
even had exposure to anything outside of my company, but we're not for your podcast. So really appreciate it. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, episode two with Ron Carson is is still one of our more popular ones. I know they've they've been spending a lot of time and energy lately trying to really build up that Excel conference, which they, we'd actually put on our best conferences list last year for practice management. And I guess it hit, hit well for you on the practice management end. Yes, very high value content. Overwhelmed by trying to implement all my takeaways, but it's a process. Yeah, that's 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 always kind of the 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 challenge when you come out of those conferences with a good experience. Like you do that, and then you go home, and then all of your teams like, no, no, please don't go to any more conferences. We can't take it. <laughs> exactly. Well, very cool. So, you as as a starting point, I think, can you just talk to us a little bit about? your advisory practice as it exists today? What do you do and who do you do it for and where do you do it? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm located in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And obviously, I've been, as you mentioned, I, I left it. I'm sure we'll talk about that story in a little bit. And then in end of 2011, we started and obviously some heavy focus on insurance the first couple of years, but really fell in love with the full financial planning and just handling every aspect of someone's financial life. So I've found there's really two buckets that I really work well with today. And the first bucket is physicians. So we handle everything you could potentially imagine for a physician, such as forgiveness program on their loans and negotiating contracts based upon their loans if they're non-for-profit, for-profit, and then handling all their wealth accumulation, insurances, et cetera. And then the other side of, of what we do is for retirees. I always use the analogy that financial planning is kind of like climbing Mount Everest. You spend your whole life getting up to the top, and then most accidents can happen on the way down. And we we manage the distribution process for for people that are retired. I would say I enjoy those two niches equally. I, I like that analogy. Fi- financial planning is like climbing Mount Everest. Most of the fatal accidents actually happen on the way down, which which is true. Like the 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 risk for people who don't know of of climbing Everest is not actually just summiting and getting to the top. It's being able to get back down, not just for like literally the treacherousness of of climbing back down a mountain, but all the all the changes that happen in your body as you're adjusting up and down to the to the altitude. And and I guess you know you look at it the same way in in the world of accumulation and decumulation planning for retirement. You know we spend most of our time accumulating. It's the equivalent of going up and climbing Mount Everest. And then you get to the top, you get to the peak, which is you've accumulated all the dollars, you're ready to retire, and you're feeling like you did great and you survived the journey. And the reality is most of the bad accidents happen on the way down. Like the, the, the real challenge now is how do you liquidate those assets and come down and not blow yourself up? Yeah, and it's really psychologically and financially when the plan goes live, obviously, stock market dips and Medicare surcharges and tax rates changing if you one person dies. I mean, there's all this nerdy stuff that I call it. Plus there's a psychological part of, you know, you've saved, you saved, you saved, you saved out of your paycheck every step of the way. And then suddenly you retire. Now just not saving is a challenge for a lot of people that have been good savers their whole life. And then actually having to take money out. I find there's a really a coaching aspect to that, that part of the business as well, which is pretty cool. Yeah. There is kind of a sad psychological bias that, that I find crops up, you know, the, the, the clients who are really good at saving tend to just be wired to spend frugally, save a lot, not spend aggressively. And then when they get to retirement, they 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 just they can't rewire themselves to start using the money. They spent so long 
always trying to tend that nest egg and make sure it's safe and growing that they they just don't know how to start using it and enjoying it. And the clients who are most likely to be really good at using it and enjoying it never manage to actually get to the spending part uh, to the to that stage because they don't save and accumulate much in the first place because they're spenders. So the you know the the non-spenders have trouble starting to spend and the spenders never save up enough to use in retirement in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I see that in, in action every day. It's it's quite interesting. Yeah, it's an unfortunate challenge. So talk to us a little bit more about your practice. So you're you're under the the Northwestern Mutual umbrella. You said you were doing more insurance early on. You're you're leaning more towards investments now. So like what is the what does the business look like at this point? Yeah, well for anyone not familiar, so North with Northwestern Mutual, you're I'm affiliated with them. I'm I'm an independent contractor though, right? So I can sell their products, I can sell outside products, and then my broker dealer, all my advisory assets are held with them obviously as well. So, you know, starting from scratch, as you said, there was a heavy focus on insurance, obviously, because that there's more revenue right right from the get-go, and that's kind of where all their training is. But now there's a shift where they've really embraced the financial planning and and figured out that if you handle every aspect of the financial plan, it all syncs together very well. So as of today, I would say actually 80% of our time is on investment, wealth management, retirement distribution, some of the physician planning, and then insurance is very, I want to dismiss it, but I mean, it's very simple, right? There's run an analysis. Most people don't don't have the coverage they need, and then you you solve the problem. But from a time perspective, I would say it's 80-20. And then from a revenue perspective, I would say it's probably 40% insurance and 60% investments, but that's going to continue to go towards the investment side. I, I would say anticipate that the insurance will go down below 10% within four or five years, and the investments will be the, the primary revenue focus as well. Okay. And so what's what's revenue overall for the practice at this point? Like how, how much stuff and activity are you doing? What does the, the firm look like? Yeah, so if we just if we pause the practice today for the year January first of twenty eighteen through December thirty first of twenty eighteen, we'd we'd just be right over eight hundred thousand of total revenue. Okay. That's a phenomenal practice. You're you're at eight hundred you're you're kind of cruising at least on track for eight hundred thousand dollars of of revenue this year. You said a portion of that is insurance and then a portion of it is investment. So can we drill down a little bit further and just like what does this revenue look like from the insurance and investment side? Like, are you writing term insurance? Are you writing permanent? Is a lot bunch of long term care? Are you doing traditional mutual fund business? Are you doing advisory accounts? Like, what does this insurance and investment business look like for your practice? Yeah, so the the investment business each quarter, I think the gross production is going to be around one sixty to one seventy, depending on what the market does with our next billing cycle, and then. Currently, our payout on that is seventy three percent. So, assuming we, you know, we continue our traction on the investments, I believe that'll end up being between you know five hundred to six hundred by the end of the year. And then from the insurance side, we do a mix of everything. A lot of disability insurance because of our physician focus. A lot of term life insurance for physicians that are you know graduating residency, and then transitioning to be an attending. And then we're the, the permanent insurance. Obviously, that's one of Northwestern's flagship products is their, their permanent, their whole life product. 
personally, our philosophy is we, we've got to make sure everyone's 401k is maxed. We've got to make sure their backdoor Roth is done. We've got to make sure they have enough going into 529 plans. And then, you know, for someone, a lot of our clients are earning north of half a million to a million dollars. We find that's a good, safe, instead of holding bonds in a taxable account where most of their money ends up going anyways because of the really tight limitations on what can go into a 401k and a Roth IRA, et cetera. We really view that as a death benefit need first, but also where the cash accumulation serves as the as the bond component of their portfolio overall. So the permanent insurance really fits into the maturing doctor that's been in practice for a couple okay. of years. So it kind of becomes a substitute bond holding with a with a death benefit kicker in a world where you know, you're you're working with people with a half million dollars up of of income. So like they've already done their four hundred one k, they've already done their other traditional savings. They presumably have ample liquidity to have some portion of fixed income tied up in a participating whole life policy at that point. Exactly. Exactly. And so on the investment side, what is that? Like, I think you said you were sort of trending at 160 to 170,000 of revenue per quarter. Is that advisory accounts? Is that like mutual fund commission payouts? Is that other investment products that you guys have in the lineup? Yeah, we actually don't do any commission business. It's all advisory assets under management. You know, I'd say generally we're between half a percent to one point three percent, all dependent on the amount of assets that someone has with us. So it's it's all advisory assets. I can't say it's all advisory assets because we Northwestern does have account minimums. You know, you have to get to twenty five thousand before you can flip to that program. So what we'll do for our clients, like physicians that are giving us four or five thousand dollars a month in a non qualified account, we'll start them in a brokerage account, but it won't. It'll be a no load fund that builds up until we flip it over to the right. Well, I guess at the at the client's size that you're working with, like it literally just takes them a few months or a quarter or two to exactly get to the size that they can flip over. Yeah, so they yeah, just yeah. flip them all, but that, I would say that's less than one percent of the total investment revenue picture. Okay. And so when you talk about revenue in the practice, so the the reality when you're in insurance-based world, uh, well, and, and really anything in our broker-dealer environment is, you know, there's there's a, a gross amount of revenue that ultimately comes from the client that essentially gets split. A portion goes to the the company, the remainder goes to the advisor in the in the form of a payout. So when when you when you think about your revenue and and you talk about revenue at, at eight hundred thousand. Is that like is, was that gross revenue at the top, and then you're getting a payout on that, or do you think of it like no, no, this is my net of payout number because this is my number? Yeah, yeah, the company got some higher piece, but like this is my- yeah. My my goal this whole podcast was to say super positive, Michael. So bring that up is funny. So the eight eight hundred is just my share. Yeah. So the the total revenue number is much much bigger than that. But I have the pleasure of being teamed up with with the big company. So a big part of that is taken away. Understandably though, they, they do the compliance and the technology and all that kind of stuff. But no, yeah, I understand that. Like the companies provide a service for what they do. You know, at some point for all of us when we make decisions about what companies we affiliate with, there's always this question of just, you know, here's the portion they take off the top. Is that is the piece they're taking worthwhile relative to the the services that they're providing? And just that's the it's the trade-off we all have to evaluate. But I, I'm just wondering, like, as you think about it and as you look at your practice, you, you don't even think about it in terms of the the gross, gross number that went up to them before it got chopped for payouts. 
you just run your business focused on here's my net amount after the payouts. This is what I work with, which is 73% on the investment side. And then I guess the insurance products have all their own structures depending on the line of insurance. Insurance products, generally speaking, you know, you earn with Northwestern, you take half of the first year's annual premium, but then you also get a small renewal, which is actually nice as a business owner. Because when I talk about my insurance revenue this year, probably the 800 number again was just a, if we kind of pause the practice and do what, we've, what we're normally doing, it's probably going to be a little bit higher than that. But the, like, the renewal is already over six figures from everything we've done in the past like seven years. You know, so the the Northwestern structure is you you get about one year's worth of someone's putting in five thousand dollars to term life, disability, long term care, the kind of the whole package. You'll make half of that in the first year, and then you'll make the other half over the next nine years. Okay, okay, which I guess helps to just smooth out the revenue as you're growing. It means well, you've got a, a healthy and investment based business as well that's recurring. But even on the classic insurance side. It, it at least gets to the point where a couple years in, when you wake up on January 1st, you're, you're not completely at zero and just have to find and service only new clients. You've got some ongoing trails so that you've got some, some compensation for the ongoing client questions that still come in. No question about it. Yeah. So, so you're sitting at this practice with about 800,000 of revenue that's your piece so then what is the what does the staff infrastructure look like for you to support this and all the the clients that you're working with? Yeah, our our goal is really aggressive growth. So like last year I believe my revenue was like 550. So obviously it's going to be the end of 2017 it was like 550, so it's going to be a huge jump obviously from year over year. Yeah, that's a huge jump. I guess when people hear me and like, I just turned 30, like, why the heck does he have so many staff? I was talking at the Excel conference. A lot of these people have $200 million under management have two staff, right? We are, the caveat to what I'm about to tell you is we are staff to grow. So we have a director of investments who does all of our, you know, portfolio management alongside Northwestern because they help us do all the research. We have Grace who does hybrid. Again, our time is mostly investment. So she does, I would say, 60% investments. And then 40% does all the processing of the insurance. Those are kind of my key right-hand partners. So what's Grace's role that like this is like client service assistant to you or like doing operations across the whole firm? I would say three. it's three-pronged right now. And we're, we're figuring this out, obviously. But the the first... One of the first thing is she does a lot of the investment A through Z processing. So for example, if we have a client that has $2 million with us and it's spread between six different you know accounts, getting all the paperwork signed and ready, getting the transfers, tracking everything, doing the rollover calls, then doing Roth conversions typically once at certain intervals and putting all the reminders in our systems to, to track all that onboarding the client. Chuck does the same thing on the investments, but then Grace also does all of our insurance, scheduling exams, doing underwriting. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it that I don't see anymore. And then getting the policies ready to mail out for delivery. And then she also is kind of my project coordinator. So when I get back from a conference like Excel and we have a million things we want to implement, we work together on a weekly basis to to get all that stuff done. So so she's bearing the brunt of this wonderful Excel conference that you had where you've 
no, exactly. all, all sorts of Ron Carson infused ideas to in, inflict upon her. Okay. Yeah. And the same goes, you know, like Northwestern conferences, obviously we get good ideas as well. So, and then we have my wife, Lindsay, who, who joined the practice about two years ago. So the quick backstory on that, she was a social worker and I was looking to hire at that time, my second employee, my second full-time employee. And she was like, you're going to pay them how much? Like that's almost twice what I make as <laughs> a social worker. Why don't I just come work for you? So I was like, all right, let's try it out. So Lindsay's been great. It's kind of the all the the love affair marketing that that Ron talks about, birthday gifts on a monthly basis to our top clients, scheduling client events, and all that all the just fielding phone calls when they come in, all the day-to-day stuff that you kind of take for granted for. But the first couple of years I look back and say, How did I even manage? So she was obviously on payroll and everything, and then so that those are three full time employees. I also share a financial planning team. We pay a little bit of, about fifteen hundred dollars a month for. They do all of our financial plans. They're phenomenal. I think I probably under underpay them. So that's like interesting. So a Northwestern Mutual like central resource for fifteen hundred dollars a month. You can send your planning information to our central team, and then we'll produce the plans for you and send them back out. Yeah, but it's actually. Each Northwestern Mutual office has like a general agent. And then that general agent obviously is in charge of like everyone in that te- territory. And then the, I think the new name now is managing partner. But so he provides certain resources, obviously, as some of the, some of the cut that Northwestern's giving goes right to the managing partner. So he's incentivized to give us good resources. And that's obviously one of them, which they've been, they've been great. They com- they provide all the compliance aspect as well. Okay. So, so it doesn't come from Northwestern home office, but it comes from your, the local GA, the local managing partner you're, you're affiliated with who does this for all the uh, Northwestern offices in, in his territory. Exactly. And what's the planning software that you guys use to do that? Yeah, that's a very interesting conversation that we don't want to get too side route here. But right now, it's personal planning analysis, like 2.0, I think it's called, which you can compare it to eMoney. I really like just because we've been using so many plans in the last three years. It does all the capability. We need to tailor make a lot of stuff. But Learnvest is actually developing a, they think it's going to be eMoney, similar or better than eMoney, where people can log into their website. The plan's there. It's live. I'm actually on the board right now with like 10 other advisors. To develop, not I'm not developing. I have no idea even how to turn my computer on, but just with giving them feedback of here's what we want, here's what. So that's I can tell that it's kind of been a struggle because you know Northwestern system, like I don't know, seventy percent of the reps are like brand new reps are trying to get to make it, and so they're and then you have like the twenty or thirty percent. I'm kind of a weird hybrid, or I would say I'm a age wise a millennial, but my planning is probably more just as advanced as anyone else in in our area. So that's been a little bit of a of an interesting journey to figure out how to make a, a plan live and how to integrate technology and, and keep the the veterans happy, I guess. So you've got a, a core team of three full-time staff, sort of the investment side, the insurance side, and the marketing side and operations is shared amongst a few of those. And then an outsourced, I guess call it like a paraplanner team that helps to you do the input and grinding work on preparing plans that you can focus mostly on like the actual client facing part, I guess. Yeah. They would tell you, I mean, they tried to, at some point I was so busy for them. They were, they were like 60% of their time was 
working for me and then the other 40% was working for the other 15 advisors. <laughs> I was just providing my work at a certain point was more than all those other advisors combined. So they were like, you don't really belong in this program. And I was like, Hey, come on, this is, we're all, everyone's, you know, doing well. You're making, obviously you're getting kind of wide in there. Like, okay, you're right, but we'll keep you. <laughs> so that's kind of a blessing in disguise right now. And then we also have two interns. So we started an internship program and they, right now they're both, they're both full time actually during the, the summer. And then during the school year, they both will go down to 20 hours a week. So I'd say that's one full-time staff with the, in, the two interns. And then I have an interesting arrangement. We have another lead advisor on our team who is actually contracted to Northwestern. He's marketed to be 100% on my team because he is, but he's actually maintaining his contract. And basically the setup is I'm taking on all the risk. He has no overhead, but then we have a revenue sharing agreement. So he's using all my staff's time that we're in a, obviously a, an agreement where revenue is shared and he he'll maintain equity of his investments, his portion of the revenue of the investments, et cetera, in the future. So that was a big win-win for both of us, but that's been going great as we scale up the end of the physician practice. That takes up a lot of time. And that's his only focus right now is, is meeting with new physicians every, every single week. Okay. So that's your, your core group. So you've got three on the operations staff side, this, this planning support team through the, through the local GA, and then another lead advisor on the team that you're building with and, and splitting business with. Exactly. Yep. And then the two interns that have have been, I've read an article that you did about the internship, but the interns have been phenomenal. They're really hard workers. One of them does all of our calling now. It's not afraid to get on the phone. So it's been, it's been great. Very cool. So as you look at this practice, you know, you've had, I think what, what most would call a a pretty phenomenal growth run, you know, particularly this year when you talk about lifting, you know, lifting net revenue up to about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the past year. I mean, just literally, like, I think you said you're 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 your eighth year in the business. You're going from five fifty to eight hundred this year. So I guess if we do the math, like, you, you're going to grow more this year than you probably did in the first like three years combined, give or take a little. So what's like where does where does new business come for you? Where's all this growth coming from? Yeah, I've read a couple of books, obviously a classic 80-20 analysis, right? 80% of your results come from 20% of what you do. So really just doing an 80-20 analysis on on every single thing and journaling about that every day for a month straight was led to several aha moments. So in the Northwestern culture, it's it's very high activity. You know, the first couple of years, you're like, the goal is to get 50 new clients. I got like nine, over 90, like 97, 98, and I broke 100. My first three years, I basically had 300 clients. And that just was not a sustainable model and not the right people for full financial planning. Maybe just for insurance planning, that model works great. So, But the, the real shift has been, I mean, this year, my goal is simply to get 15 new clients that look to us for every aspect of their financial plan and they have over a million dollars with us. And that's the only goal. When you put your time and energy in that, you know, one one client in that category can be more valuable than 30 clients that you're just selling a term insurance policy to and then call them every year. So that's been really the the big aha or shift in, in focus is building out a concierge planning practice, not just a typical what I would call like a Granum practice. I'm sure you're familiar with Al Granum's 1031 system. So, you know, it took me culturally, it's hard to shift away from that because there's very few people at Northwestern that think like we did it successfully and couldn't be more grateful for it. 
Yeah. So for those who aren't aren't familiar, you should just say really fast. So Al Al Granum taught, I guess, like sales and business development in the insurance world going back many decades ago, and kind of pioneered what was called the the one card system of putting all the client's information on one card. So bear in mind, this is the days of you know essentially Rolodexes. Like we're we're going way before computers here, and you know Al kind of drove this system of bring everything down to these these sets of one cards on Rolodexes and and really was one of the first people to to teach and emphasize the nature of business development at the end of the day is a numbers game. So his big thing was this 1031 ratio like you're you're going to call on 10 people to get three meetings to get one client. And you know sort of built into that is assume 90% of the people you contact aren't going to do business with you. That's just normal. That's how it works. That's part of what's built into the 1031. And and just it it was one of these lessons that was hammered into everybody, particularly on the insurance side of the business. That's that's I think where he he got his momentum. So like I know he was used at taught at Northwestern Mutual. You know, I started at New England Life at the beginning of my career and and they talked about 1031 and and we're still on the tail end of using the one card system and and like 1031, 1031, 1031, it's a numbers game is what you learn when you're getting started because that that's just the reality of the environment at that point. Yeah, and I, I think the the reality is it's a good system for an average college kid graduating, building a business from scratch because then your your primary focus is activity. But the analogy I would use is there's think about a horse race, you know, first place maybe wins over a million dollars if it's a if it's the big event, the Kentucky Derby, and then the second place maybe a nose behind the first place, but wins maybe a tenth of that, right? So there's not that big of a difference in those two horses, but one gets 10x the results in the, in the second place. I I really try to focus, and I heard that analogy, I think in like a Brian Tracy CD in my first first year, which is you know, kind of like sales 101, but amazing, amazing thought process and content. But so my takeaway was, well, how can I beat this 10-3-1 thing? I, I can't accept that. Obviously, I, I took a lot of rejection in my first three years with the amount of activity that I did, but how can I beat this ratio? So within my second year, the closing ratio is high 60% which was kind of dumbfounding. So then, but the reason for that, I wasn't doing everything by the system. I was, wasn't just going and talking about insurance. I was helping people with their 401ks, with their student loans or their credit cards, using credit cards. So you name it, I was doing it. And when I was doing that, I didn't really have to ask for referrals. So all of our calls were starting to be inbound calls because of the value provided. And then the good thing was that we grew really quickly. The bad thing, though, there was no control over a niche market. It was just anyone and everyone was like, Matt is great. His team's great. Go work with them. So it, it led into a good problem, essentially. And here we are. Now. I, lo- I love that analogy of of horse racing that that just, you know, the just the realities of, com- I think, really any competitive environment, like, you know, just, just being a nose ahead of the competition, sustaining at that level is the difference between you know first place wins a million dollars, second place wins wins a hundred thousand in the in the horse race? It, it reminds me of the old movie Glen Gary Glen Ross, which is you know a movie about guys that are are selling real estate, and there's a, a famous scene with Alec Baldwin that comes in as a sales manager to to bring in like the the home office sales competition to get everybody all fired up, and and the prizes for the sales contest you know num- number one wins a Cadillac. This was set in the eighties and like you know, Cadillac was just mm, the premier vehicle. So like first place is a Cadillac, second place is a set of steak knives, third place is you're fired. And just 
Granted, not the best for problematic sales incentives. <laughs> not not a not a great movie for ethical selling, but it does kind of drive home just the the nature of the unevenness of a, of competition, and that just being slightly better than the competition on a sustained basis produces these extraordinarily compounding outsized results. That I need to watch that movie. There's a there's a there's a famous clip for it. I'll 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 make sure we put this in the in the show notes for anybody who wants to go back and see it. So this is episode eighty. So if you go to kitsis.com slash eighty, we'll have the the video to the famous Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross sales manager pitch with Alec Baldwin. It's a pretty famous and highly entertaining scene, even if it maybe slightly makes your skin crawl. Yeah, I'm gonna say thank God for the DOL rule. I think that is one of the best things that happened, whether it sticks or not, just the industry is different now. Yeah. Amen. So talk to us a little bit about just this dynamic. You 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 kind of threw in a comment there of you know, you were very activity focused in the first few years. Northwestern aims to have you try to get sixty clients in the first year. You were getting close to a hundred and picked up three hundred in the first three years. You know, for for a lot of advisors I know who are getting started, like they're hoping to get a hundred clients in their first decade. You got it in your first twelve months. So, talk to us a little bit about what the heck you're doing that you're getting a hundred clients that you're engaging with in any way, shape, or form first year out, and and being like an early twenty something. Which you know, I remember when I started selling insurance as an early 20-something, like anybody you sit across from, they're looking at you like, oh, you're like my grandson, which is not the best for building credibility while you're trying to get business done. So like, what what are you doing in this first year that you're driving in this kind of client activity? If it would help, I could give you a quick backstory. If I think that's important of how I got there the first year and, and kind of what motivated me that first year versus what motivates sure, me now. Sure, sure, Absolutely. So I, I in turn, I went to a small college in Pit, right outside of Pittsburgh called Geneva College, less than like 2,000 people there. So very few, not, not, it's great college, but very few exposure to big companies. So somehow there was a connection with one of my favorite professors to Northwestern Mutual. So I, I interviewed between my junior and senior year, got an internship, did very well during the internship. You, you had to get license from an insurance perspective and you had to go obtain clients. I was one of the top interns in the country from that aspect. And then I still remember this day, one, I think it was someone from my church growing up, I was you know, sitting down at a restaurant with, and their comment was, Matt, you, you really have to get a real job out of once you graduate college. Got up and says, thanks for the attempt and I left. <laughs> and so I was stuck as a college kid with like a bill, like $20 to me. That was like everything I had in my wallet at that time. It's like, oh my goodness, this career is horrible. I can't believe it. My parents were extremely supportive. I don't even think I told them that during the because it would have created like, you know, problems in the church. My dad's actually a pastor. So I kept that to myself. I was like, this, I cannot do this. Like, this is horrible. And I, I had similar experiences to like other people saying, like, this is not a real career, not sales is the worst possible thing you could do. So I somehow got an interview at Deloitte during my senior year and Auditing, to be honest, is the only class I did not get an A in in college. In fact, I got like a C. I barely got a C. I hated it so much. So I get this interview at Deloitte, and what is what am I doing? It's auditing. So I ask my professors for the opinion. I ask everyone except myself for what their opinion is. I take that Deloitte. It's so prestigious. Yes, you should go do that. Yes, you should go do that. So I end up right out of college going to Deloitte for a year. 
could not have been more miserable and was auditing in this. If you've ever been in a room in a small room in accountants, I think the first room I was in, it was like West Virginia university. We're auditing there and the energy in this room was just horrible. And I just remember calling my wife the first day of the job. Like, what did I get myself into? But right before I started, I was, I was engaged a couple months after college during that summer. And we were scheduled to get married next February, right in the middle of busy season. And obviously, we wanted to take a honeymoon. So I asked, I told Deloitte, I was like, hey, I need to schedule this week off, February 6th, I think, to whenever we were headed to Jamaica. And they're like, well, this is our busy season. And most people, in fact, no one has ever taken a vacation during this time period. I was like, the one thing I took away from Northwestern in my internship is the independence was unbelievable. Some of the most successful people there, like they left at three, they had a good job. They, you know, they were at every kid's game. So I told them, I was like, what's my honeymoon? Of course I'm going to take off. And so that was just looked at. I was like despised by some of the partners and, and people there after I took a week off during honeymoon, like my wedding day, I actually had to work all the way until like four o'clock that day. And was the, you know, at the wedding, like a half hour before it started. But as I was out the door of, of Deloitte, I interviewed at a couple other companies because I really didn't want to go back and sell insurance. I was very turned off by that. I didn't want to have to build it. Everything you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I didn't want to have to build it by myself. I didn't want to have to go call on friends and family. In fact, I had exhausted my network just during the internship. So on the way out, a partner says, because remember, I've only been there 11 months. So on the way out the door... A partner says, Matt Blocky, I'm obviously a couple of explicitives in there. No one leaves Deloitte in a year. Who does that kid think he is? He's going to be flipping burgers for the rest of his life. Just wait. And so he didn't say that to me, obviously, but he said it to one of my friends who was part of his audit engagement. That got back to me. It just fired me up. I was like, oh, I got to prove everyone wrong. So I get to Northwestern. I have a hundred, probably a hundred people from Deloitte that I've met. Obviously, I've kept them in like an Excel spreadsheet, names and numbers. I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. Thank God I've got a good network now. So I start calling every single person at Deloitte and I get no, 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 ignore, ignore, ignore. Just like it must have been like wildfire that spread. No one at Deloitte was going to work with me. And to this day, I have zero clients at Deloitte to this day. So people look at that first year, they think, oh, Matt, he went to Deloitte. He had this network. He just told everyone at Deloitte. Well, that's just not true. I literally thought I was going to fail out of the business every day for the first six months of my career. I don't know how I survived You know, going from just getting married to giving up a good salary first year out of college and then going straight, straight back to a eat what you kill kind of model. So the first year, how I got those clients, this is a long story, but hopefully a helpful one, is I... I started calling all of my alumni from my college, a lot of engineers, a lot of people that worked in you know, mid-level finance jobs, and just try to do really good fact-finding and, and listen to people. And then the rest is history. And then we did, you know, was pretty good at, at gently asking for referrals. Who else you know, would you provide? Who else do you think would provide this would provide value to? And people were open and receptive to that. But there was a lot of adversity to get to that through that first year. I would never want to go back. In fact, I don't know if I would, if I knew what I had to do, I don't know if I would go and repeat it even to get to the success I have today. So what what did those alumni calls look like? I, I'm just curious. I'm just trying to visualize this. Like, 
hey, Jim, you know, we, we went to school together, haven't seen you in a few years. I'm working with Northwestern Mutual now, and I'd love to just talk to you about what you're doing with your finances. Yeah, it, it was more or less, <laughs> there's something called red letter language. I never used it. I was like the worst employee ever, or not employee, independent contractor, I guess, of Northwestern Mutual. It was just very transparent. I tell people exactly why I was calling. Running a financial planning practice now, I'd love to to sit down with you and see if there's any value I could provide on top of what you're currently doing. I'm sure you've got a lot of this stuff already handled. So kind of took the objection right off the table. But are you open for a free second opinion? And it was hard for people to turn that down. And so that was how you built just going back to the alumni network and offering second opinions? Alumni network is who I called, second opinions. And then within a couple of weeks, I was out of that because I, I just had to get referred into different networks. And so the first year or two is tons of engineers, tons of married couples, young married couples, just doing very basic planning to getting term life insurance set up to doing 529 plan for their kids to getting their debt consolidated in the, in the correct manner and then starting like Roth IRAs. That was like a I did probably like 90 out of 100 plans were just like what I just described my first year. And so where where are you finding all these people though? Like I, I, I know for so many advisors that get started, if they don't have a, a strong and deep natural network, like they just literally don't know who to who to call and who to call on and how to get them to take your call or, or email or knock or whatever it is. Yeah. So LinkedIn, I did pay for the advanced LinkedIn. You can just search Geneva alumni and I'd go through every company and, and we would do tons of research before every meeting. So, you know, let's say I was, I was meeting with you and you were a year or two ahead of me at Geneva. We'd meet, I'd try to provide as much value as possible, ask the right questions. I'd come back with a free financial plan. I have no idea if you would actually do business with me or not. At the end of that, I'd ask, you know, did you find value in this? And Hopefully you said yes, like 99% of the time there was a yes. I'd say, well, I'd, I think there's an epidemic for good planning out there. I'd, I'd really be excited to to meet any friends or, or family or colleagues that you have that you think would, would want to have a similar conversation and then wait to see what they say. Typically, a couple of referrals would come. And now, by the way, I'm like the worst prospector ever. I don't even ask for referrals. But after they were done giving a couple of referrals, typically, I would also have a, like a list from LinkedIn because we would have connected. And there'd be 10 to 20, depending on how aggressive I felt during the day of names of people that they I knew they were connected to. And I would just simply ask them permission. We did some research on your LinkedIn. Didn't try to... I, a lot of people say, oh, like we have a marketing person that did this. I just say, no, I looked on your LinkedIn and here's some people that kind of thought would fit the category of, of the people that we love to work with. Do you feel comfortable? So you'd actually, you'd actually look at them on LinkedIn, look at their LinkedIn connections and and ask pretty directly, like, hey, you know, uh, these five people in your network you're connected to on LinkedIn, I, I think I might be able to help them. Will you give me an introduction, or can I contact them and use your name? That that's it. Or would you would you willing to to shoot an email introduction? I hate being on the phone. It was brutal. <laughs> Obviously, try to get like an email introduction. Say, would you mind providing an email introduction, and I can send you a blurb of here's Matt, here's what he does, etc. And I found that was the most successful way to to do it. But yeah, my back was against the wall, right? Because I thought I just left a salary job. I had what I thought was going to be guaranteed success completely blow up in my face on the Deloitte thing. And I had to figure it out really quickly unless I wanted to fail out and, and have to go back to an accounting job. And the big motivation really was the first year because I did want to quit. 
literally several times a day for the entire first six months. I'm, I'm not making that up. <laughs> and some days I did it's quit. Brutal, and then, the number of no's you got to take. But it builds adversity, which I think is, you know, is part of the journey of life. I just had to figure out a way to make it work. And obviously, with there was some great mentoring. I remember my one of the most helpful people, Ryan McKenna, who's managing director now, but he was kind of a mentor at the time. He was there every day. I was probably on the phone with him every single day. And he was uh, someone to listen to, someone that would, you know, you got this. You've got this blocky, you know, let's go get it and give me suggestions. And so I think that mentorship is extremely important. I will say that's something that Northwestern does. They do build a great culture of a mentorship, especially those first couple of years, because I just couldn't have done it. I couldn't have made it past my first month if I didn't have that strong mentorship. So how did you look at goals and what you were trying to, to do in the early years? I mean, did you just hear, hey... Everybody else gets 60 clients in their first year. So you said like, damn it, I'm, I'm going to do 100 in the first year and prove that old Deloitte guy wrong. And, and that's what you were shooting for? Like, how did you? Yeah, my, my first year was an immature. I was, what, 22 at the time. Very immature, exactly what you said. Kind of lit a fire under my butt what that guy said about me flipping burgers. So I just didn't want to fail. I didn't want to be proven wrong. And there was obviously a financial driven, I, you know, I think Deloitte salary started out at like 45000 It took about, in Pittsburgh, it took like over seven years to break a six-figure salary. And so my, my goal was to do that, to have a six-figure income in three years. Ended up doing it in year one. But that was sadly the motivation. I just wanted to prove someone else wrong. So after that first year, it kind of tabled back. And now it's, I've slow, you know, slowly matured, especially in the last three or four years. It's money is not an issue. I live a very, very simple lifestyle. We're all about growth. And I think the, the number one thing that motivates me is just seeing the impact we can have on clients' lives and how we can really do a 180 with they weren't on track for everything. And now we have them saving more than they ever have in their life. And they're, they're able to, live a present life again. They're not stressed on a month-to-month basis. I just can't describe the uh, the feeling after you, you help someone so much. So that, that's really the motivating factor now. But that's the journey that I've had to come through to get there. So what was it like for you like calling on alumni and, and folks you worked with in this insurance sales role? Like, Were you just fine as a salesperson reaching out? Did it feel icky that you didn't like sales, but here you were, so you had to push through because we just had to prove that old dude at Deloitte wrong? Like, so you, yeah. Yeah. The, the first year I felt like crap, right? There were tons of rejection, obviously. I, people see the success of 100 people. They don't, they don't hear about the 200 people that said no that first year, right? Or didn't call me back. So th- there was a it was a completely a belief system, right? I think when people say no, they're not saying no to you. They're saying no to, they don't want to talk about financial planning. They don't want to, the need that we've uncovered for protecting their family or for saving for the future. They want to live in the now, now, now. So it took some significant coaching, but now my, my belief system, I'd say, is so strong that it just, a no just doesn't even affect me. I just, it's part of the business. It's expected and it's, I'm grateful for it, to be honest, because if, you know, if everyone said yes, everyone, I think every single person in this world would want to be a financial planner. It's just a phenomenal career path. And if it was easy, it would be, everyone would do it. And if everyone was doing it, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't have to pay us anything. They'd pay us like 
a social worker like my wife. And then I would still do it because I like it so much. But I think it's fun to have the revenue and be able to pay your partners, your employees and and build an awesome team and a big vision. That's just kind of a long-winded answer, but it doesn't affect me now. It did back then. So were there like, what did you do to get through it? Like certain like routines, certain things you you did just sheer stubbornness and and a mentor that just kept saying you can do it while you you ground through like what what would your advice be to someone who's stuck in this similar situation right now like what do they need to be doing to get themselves through it the way that you got yourself through it i think doing an 80 20 analysis right from the get-go what is the 20 percent of what i'm doing that's working and what is the 80 percent i'm doing that i'm just completely wasting my time so with this client builder that we had to fill out, it was all focused on activity. There's a million things that you could focus on, such as they wanted you to get 80 referrals a month. They wanted you to keep 60 appointments a month. They wanted you to take 20 fact finders, which is just described as a new approach to a new person, just getting their information, the financial goals. So there's like literally a million things you could track. So my only focus was getting the 20 fact finders because I, I could not control whether someone yet said yes or no. And so to this day, if you take a perfect fact finder and you think this person's going to be an awesome client, they may be no. And the person that you thought went horribly may be your best client in five years. You just never know. So a pure focus on not just activity, but the right kind of activity, I think is so huge. I was never worried about one individual case. I think the two primary focuses I had was that first year and really the first three years, as crazy as this sounds, was taking 20 fact finders a month at a minimum, which I did, and always being 25 appointments ahead on the calendar. So when I left left the office on Friday, the next week had to have 25 appointments booked. If there wasn't, I wouldn't leave Friday or I would work Saturday morning until there was 25 appointments ahead. And I would call people on Saturday if I had to. So there just wasn't, there wasn't any going back. And and where again, are you finding people to set 25 appointments with? Like, I don't know, maybe my social life's relatively boring. Like, <laughs> if I set 25 appointments a week with people I know, I would be done in a few weeks. Yeah, so. <laughs> and there's like 49 weeks left in the year. Thank God, not all those appointments kept, right? So, and that, by the way, my practice today is completely different than what we're talking about in these first couple of years. Just yeah, yeah. Clear. I want to I wanna come back in a few minutes to like, how different is it now? What does it look like? But this end is like, I mean, this is where we all start when you start in the, like the getting the clients grind. For everybody that actually starts with getting clients, this is the grind. So where are you finding 25 plus people a week to contact just to have a shot at getting 25 appointments set. Yeah, that was that was always why you want to get 80 referrals, right? I never was able to get 80 referrals though. I find a lot of people that reporting they were getting 80 referrals a month would end up failing out of the business because only like one out of 10 people at Northwestern ended up staying past the first year. So it was all feeder list. It was, I mean, I did a ton of cold calling as well, to be honest. I, I didn't focus on how many calls, how many referrals I took, None of that was a focus. If I focus on that, it would just be depressing because I wasn't that skilled, right? I would. I mean, listen. At a certain point, these people knew my number. Like, I wish I would have been a financial advisor like twenty years ago. Like, we didn't have a caller ID. So what I had to do. This is embarrassing. I had my cell phone, and then I figured out after I called people a couple of times, they just stopped answering my calls. So I actually got another cell phone, and I'd flip back and forth between <laughs> the two. 
So, so the number of inbound calls they saw was cut in half. It was, it was a necessary no, but it for mentally it just it allowed me to get a lot of clients I never would have gotten because I would have talked myself out. Of, no, I've called that person twice. I don't want to bother them again. They haven't returned my call. But this is a new number. Boom. For some reason, it was just mentally I was willing to call them a third time, and that's what it took to for them to become a client. Because what magically changed on the third call? I mean, I'm just imagine person's like, aren't you the same Matt Blocky that called me from a different number last week? What suddenly puts the, puts someone over the third time you call them after the first two? I, you know, there's been books that have been written. There's something magic about three tries or three objections. I think most, and if you just read a Brian Tracy, he says like seven times on a typical, when you're approaching someone to do business, Majority of the population is going to say no the first try. Majority of the population is going to say no the second try. And then the third try, there is something statistically that is magical about that that third try. So you can't give up after the the first two tries. And, and my belief system was so strong, right? I mean, there's never been someone I've been able to sit down with and not been able to help in some fashion. So my belief system wasn't, I'm going to I'm annoying this person. I'm going to have a bad reputation. No, I was referred to this person. They're probably embarrassed they haven't called me back because their friend spoke highly of me. They should at least accept my call, and I'm just there to help them, right? So with that kind of belief system, it's just unshake. You're unshakable. There's no really doing wrong, and the confidence that comes across on the phone, no one's ever going to call you out if if you're the more confident person. I think there's something really powerful there around just you know a the 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 impact of being confident when you when you contact them because people notice pretty quickly when you're not. And, and just that idea that for all of us that have reached out to some potential person about hopefully doing business and got no response, that if, if you haven't, you know, if you tried and it didn't work and you haven't done a minimum of two follow-up attempts, you, you haven't tried hard enough yet. You haven't even given yourself enough of a chance yet because sometimes it just takes three times because they're busy and life's going on and they were distracted by something else going on that day when your inquiry came in and it was nothing against you. You just have to try three times before you give up on a prospect. And my best clients today that have you know three or four million dollars with us, they expect that from us, right? They're busy, and if I call them, you know, for a review, and they never call me back, and then suddenly six months go by, I mean, that that's the liability, or not the liability, that the client's still looking at us like, no, this is your responsibility. Like if it, we don't, we hired you because of your professional persistence for us to reach our goals. We don't like dealing with this stuff. So even our clients today, when we're scheduling meetings, it's not, we don't get it. We have tremendous relationships with people. And some people it's obviously in text or an email and it's scheduled like that. But some of our busiest clients, I mean, they, they expect us to, to reach out several times and they say, thank you so much for your team being so persistent. We never get anything done unless we're sitting down in the same room with you. So I think there's nothing bad that comes from being professionally persistent. Obviously, if we're calling a hundred times and, and we're just trying to force you know a sale, which is never the intention, then there's you know, lots of bad things. I think the intention has to be right. The confidence has to be there and you have to be professionally persistent. I, I I love that label that you have to be professionally persistent, right? Like not annoyingly persistent, that won't work, but professionally persistent because particularly as you start moving up to folks with a little bit more income and affluence, like they just may be busy doing a lot of things in their business and professional lives, right? Like you want to call on doctors, doctors are busy. 
So you may have to persist. Just do it professionally so they still respect you. <laughs> the annoying persistence, I went down that route and I can say in my first year or two when I started getting in the doctor market, that actually worked as well. And one of my best clients today, she's a OBGYN and she she just wrote me this like three page thank you note and said, nah, I never would have we went she went from having like four hundred thousand dollars of school loans to having them paid off in four years after residency. She was gonna buy like this huge house and I said, No, I think you're gonna feel much, much better if you So she sent this like three page thank you note. I if I had never I mean her I probably called like fifteen times <laughs> because I really wanted to get into the market. She was so thankful. She's like, I cannot believe how professional... And she labeled me as professionally persistent even after 15 times. I would call that annoyingly persistent. But this, again, was back in the the desperation days, the, the start of year two, where I had made it, but now I need to get into a better market quick or else I'm not going to be able to hire staff. I'm not going to be able to you know, build the practice I want. So I started into the doctor market. and So there was some of the annoying persistence in there in the early days, which which worked out well. It really did. Did it still make you feel awkward and self-conscious when you were doing it and you just said, I, I got to do it anyways? Or like, does that stuff just not phase you much? It didn't at the time. No, I've been thinking about it. I think it should have. <laughs> so maybe there's something wrong with me. <laughs> but I guess when when a physician, the majority of if, – if you're an American physician, there's a 95% chance you have school loans. There is so much bad advice out there, and I truly believe no one knows the loans better than I do. I've just spent hundreds upon hundreds of hours on the phone with these people, and I they have to meet me. They 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 have to meet me, and there's no excuse not to. So I think that again, that back to the belief system. You know, it takes three calls or ten calls. I really want to help that person. I think they're they're really going to be screwed in their financial decision in their financial life if they don't. So. Yeah, it didn't phase me, to be honest. All right. So bring us forward then a little bit to today. Like what is – you said you've gone from the first few years, you you were doing this 100 clients a year of just anyone you can do business with. Now you're shooting for 15 clients all year but with million-dollar asset minimums. So like what does the practice look like now? Or I guess what what changed for you over the past – five or six years about how you go about trying to grow the business and get clients? Yeah. So the last three years I've, I've hired coach. One was a pure, but I refer to as a head coach just really helped build out the vision really big, really helped with the limiting beliefs that would pop up on a day to day basis. And really just helped me figure out, you know, what are, what am I building? Why am I building it? What's your purpose? All those kind of psychological things. That was extremely helpful. And then since we've gone to more of a, a technical practice management coach in the Carson Group, and that that's been just as helpful, just in a completely different way. You know, busy to be busy, I think, is the most severe form of laziness. And I got that quote from a book. But being busy just to be busy is a severe form of laziness. So there are a lot of people that need our help. There's a lot of people that we can have high impact on. I found that there's certain segments that we can provide about 10 times the amount of help than we can with certain segments. And especially being at Northwestern Mutual with the product suite, we really do well with physicians and we really do well with retirees. A permanent life insurance policy for someone making a household income of 150000 200000 just doesn't make sense. They haven't even maxed out their 401ks. They haven't maxed out their Roth IRAs. So we're really just... Instead of someone thinking for me, 
and not saying that was bad because I was immature those first couple of years and Matt, do the activity, do the activity. I've really taken a step back and thought to think for myself. And, you know, one of my biggest fears is just not reaching the potential God has given me. So those two markets I found, I think are, are how I'm going to bring my potential. I'm going to provide the most value to people. So that's just the focus. I'm not saying we're going to do more, we're going to do more than 15 clients, but that's the goal. That's, that's how we're going to define success this year if we do those 15 clients. And, and can I ask who are the coaches that you work with, or at least if you want to recommend them because you were happy with the results, who did you work with that you'd recommend to others? So now it's still Carson Group. They're great. So that's Peak, Peak Advisor Program? I think it's called Carson Group Coaching now, but it used to be called Peak Advisor Alliance. But yeah. And then previously, I, I, her name was Alyssa Gogger. She's her own coach. It's called UnleashYourPractice.com, I believe. I believe, as weird as it sounds, she only coaches Northwestern reps, which I guess you could say, people could say, why? That? She's missing in the market. Well, I can tell you she's found a niche or niche or however you pronounce it, because there's a ton of people that use her and a ton of people that love her. I, you know, you could reach out to her, but honestly, I think from a positivity, work-life balance, enjoying the process as we grow, I, I credit a lot of that too, to her. Excellent. All right. We'll make sure we include as out to as well, both Carson Group Coaching and Elisa Gogger. So again, this is episode 80. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 80 and go down to the resources mentioned in this podcast area, we'll have some notes for it as well. So the, this evolution of working with physicians, like, can you talk to us about how that how that came about and and what you do to like what you do that makes you a quote niche for physicians versus any other advisor says like yeah I work with doctors too. What makes you what makes you special? Yeah, so how we really broke into this market is we started doing seminars for residency groups. So a lot of advisors say, I don't want to go talk to residents. They're buried in debt. They make no money. There's no revenue right now. And that is 100% true. I lose so much money working with residents. not even funny. In the short term, in the long term, it's a very mutually beneficial relationship. Very, very high impact. So we go in there. Physicians are very academic focused. So we go in there with an educational mindset. And we're going to educate the physicians on what they should be doing with their negotiating contracts and how they're paid. I mean, physicians are talk about a eat what you kill model. Like most physicians right now are an eat what you kill model. And there's this thing called RBUs and just understanding how those work, what the ratios are, how to negotiate those in your contract can be the difference of a couple hundred thousand. A couple hundred thousand of income to them. Just Oh my goodness. Yeah. I just helped uh, an orthopedic surgeon in a different state negotiate a contract. And his base salary is going to be like 400 with, let's say, I'm just making these numbers up for the sake of the podcast. And it was like 6,000 of RVUs. We looked at national data and said, well, for this amount of income, you should only have to do 5,500 RVUs and you should be bonused on anything above the 5,500 at $70 per RVU. So in that example, that was just a simple one. That's 500 times 70, that difference, that's a $35,000 pay raise in this first year just from that. And then multiply that over the five-year contract, it's pretty big. But physicians just don't know how to negotiate or how to ask or how that works. So that's that's something that they're drawn to work with. And then I think that's number two, actually. Number one is their student loans. So currently, knock on wood, there, there's a program called the 10-Year Public Student Loan Forgiveness Program that if you work at a non-for-profit, you have direct loans, 
and you make a qualifying type of repayment for 10 years, your loans get forgiven at the end of the 10 years and they actually get forgiven tax-free. A lot of forgiveness programs actually tax you on the balance, making it not beneficial when you calculate the, the present value of doing that versus refinancing with a 10-year forgiveness is completely tax-free at the end. So we educate clients on, well, when you finish residency or fellowship, you're going to get offers at a private practice or a hospital. And if you go to a private practice, you are giving up your loan forgiveness. You know, you're maybe three to six years on this. If you go do another three years or four years in some cases, you're going to have your loans completely forgiven. So what's the break-even point for that? What do you have to gross before taxes to get to that difference of what your loan payment would be if you refinance and paid it off in the same time period? And then we use that analysis and bring it to both employers and say, listen, here's where I'm at. I've got a ton of loans. It's stressing me out. Can If you're a private practice, we're, off, we're saying, can you raise the salary to meet what I'm getting offered at the non-for-profit so my loans are in the same spot four or five years from now? So really just high value stuff. And once they, along with the loan planning, with the, I'm not going to get into politics right now, but obviously these the, the loan program has been talked about even in the Obama administration of getting rid of the program or capping it at about 57,000. And now under the, the Trump administration, they're talking about getting rid of it altogether. So there is a big fear of what happens if it goes away. And you know our research shows that participants that have filled out the right paperwork would be grandfathered in the program. But regardless, what's a better motivation to start saving money than backing up your loans? So we say, well, if you overpay your loans, you're just wasting money. If you end up do getting forgiveness, pay the payments that they're asking you, pay the minimum and every dollar you have in your budget, let's put into a mutual fund account. Let's shoot for the same rate of return to asset allocate, get seven, six to 7%. And if your loans get forgiven, you have a couple hundred thousand dollars that you can use for college or for retirement or for a down payment on a house. If your loans don't get forgiven, you don't have to lose sleep at night because we're just going to take this money and wipe out the remaining balance at the end anyways. So those are some of the strategies and tactics to, to help a physician really maximize their financial plan right from the get-go. But there's like, if you want me to, I can go through everything, but there's like eight other things. I guess I'm just curious, like the mere fact that there's eight other things. Can you at least just share some more of them of other things you're doing. I mean, I'm, I'm struck by this, like the, you know, helping client, helping, well, clients in general, but young doctors with student loans, helping them negotiate employment contracts. Like these are classically not things we do as, as financial advisors, not that they're financial, but they're things we traditionally don't get paid for. So they just usually traditionally were things we don't do, but you're doing them for your physician clients. So I, I guess, A, I'm, I am curious to hear what other things you're doing for your clients in this category? And then second, like how you think about it or justify it to yourself of all this work you're doing for stuff that we traditionally don't get paid for. Yeah. So one out of 10 people we're going to help and that, you know, they, they have an uncle that's in the insurance business or uh, in the wealth management business or they're do-it-yourselfers. And, you know, they, they just ask us for free advice and they're there are there are people out there that in any profession that will do that, but you know nine out of ten you you sit down with people and obviously I could I'm a fee based planner I do do fee based planning I find residents can't afford fee based planning I explain that to them and say listen I'm going to invest the time in you and we're going to we're going to grow together I'm paid off of an assets model it's a flat fee I'll grow as you grow and I'm going to invest the time up front in you and create the blueprint and really get your life in the right trajectory for the future so. A fee-based plan is not going to help my business. I mean, honestly, if I were to charge two or three thousand dollars, it's not and do fifty plans this year, an extra hundred thousand I don't need. I think it would actually potentially get in the way of of 
accelerating all the residents because a lot of people wouldn't afford that would say, no, I'm not going to do this. So we take the risk. We take the time up front and justify in the fact that we're going to create a long-term relationship and be their, the quarterback of their financial plan. I mean, that's our goal. That's our why. Be the quarterback and CPAs, the attorneys, they come to us with permission. I don't ever want to be in the position where I'm seen as a financial advisor or as a, an insurance guy and the CPAs tell me what to do. I won't work with a client like that. It's just a, either we're the quarterback or we're not. And so to create that coveted spot in the financial life of a client, I think you've, you've really it's easy to do that from day one if you're there along the way when they know you're not getting paid and providing all that value. We've created some lifetime relationships with that. So it may be the worst like revenue model ever. I can tell you it's the best like relationship and long-term model I've I've come up with. So out of curiosity, do you ever think about trying to generate some revenue from it? Like, do you even have the option under the Northwestern umbrella that like you could charge them $500 for a quick start plan to help them review their employment contracts or $1,000 for a student loan analysis and review of their hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loan debt, where you can still give advice that you know gives them an ROI on the $500,000 they spend on your planning fee. Do you, do you think about that stuff? Yeah. So North, Northwestern doesn't like, yeah, I do. I have all the time and we've gone back and forth on it. I, I found it hasn't been necessary yet because 90% of the, you know, when we do this for someone, most of them are becoming clients. And then we, you know, they're buying disability, they're buying term life through us. They're buying, and right there, there's a, you know, usually a thousand or $2,000 of revenue right there. And we're not, that's not even breaking even for us with all the, the staff I have. I mean, we're, we're at a high number from an overhead perspective, but Really, we're just looking to engage in a wealth management relationship with them and have them invest all their money outside their 401k with us. And that eventually becomes very mutually beneficial for the client and for us. Um, I have toyed, away, toyed around with that. Northwestern doesn't like us doing the contract review or the loans. So they definitely wouldn't let us charge a fee for that specific reason. We would need to provide charge a fee for the, the financial plan and then just provide that on a on a case-by-case basis from an, an, an advising standpoint, not actually doing the paperwork on the the contracts or the loans, et cetera. Okay. Well, I guess which just kind of gets right back to the the core point. Like these are not traditionally areas advisors working and get paid on, which I guess also means not traditionally the area that Northwestern compliance folks are used to doing compliance reviews to figure out whether you're giving you know, advice that's going to get them in trouble. Yeah. There is a big back and forth. Errors and emissions coverage doesn't cover this. And I actually, I hired it a second opinion to see. And it actually was covered. Federal loans are covered, private loans are not. So I was allowed to do it. So it's, it's kind of been a gray area, to be honest, that the whole student loan advising, they, they're they blessing I do it because of the success, but they don't want to be charging a, a specific fee for it or actually doing the paperwork. It's more from an advising perspective of what payment should you be on? How's the analysis going to look hypothetically? There's a huge decision on, on whether clients file taxes together or separately to keep payments lower or higher. That can make a lot of people's head spins. I, I've just been around it so much that I can, you know, you come at me with a, a orthopedic surgeon that makes 400 and the internal medicine physician makes 200 and they're married exactly what they should do and why and what's going to be more beneficial, the taxes they save or the loan payments. And it, it is a very complicated thing. So I can see why Northwestern doesn't want to open that up to the whole field and say, because there, there's a lot, there's high stakes. It's easy to mess up. And, and so, from that end, like, how did you build your own expertise to do this? Like, if you decided, hey, I'm, 
I'm doing stuff with these physicians. They have some dollars. I think I like working with them. I want to go deeper with them. Like, where are you learning about doctor employment contracts and how RVU negotiations work and you know, the, the rules for PSLF when you want your student loan forgiveness? Like, how, where are you getting all the stuff you need to know to actually be able to give advice in these areas? Yeah, it's it, the human brain is so crazy. I mean, if you would have looked at my Deloitte days, I was the worst employee ever. I didn't know anything about auditing. I could care less. Oh my goodness. I, I can't believe I, I mean, obviously people like clients love me. So they, I was like, how did they not fire me? I was like the worst, right? I, they had to show me how to do things like 10 times over. So what I found in the financial planning actually is that I'm able to learn stuff and engage so quickly because it interests me so much. And I always joke that my brother is like a PhD at Carnegie Mellon, postdoc, perfect top of his class, perfect grades. He kind of stole the smart genes from my family and I just kind of fell out after him. But And that is the reality. But if anyone finds something they're passionate about, I think it's really, really easy to learn. So I wasn't originally passionate about student loans or passionate about contract, but I really like good people. And so what I found when I'm sitting down with the physicians is that I was asking these questions and Northwestern trained you to ask good questions, but then they'd say, here's my life dreams. And you come back and you show them an insurance illustration. He's <laughs> like, how is that helping with their house they want to buy next year? So I took it upon myself to do the entire plan. And the common theme was physicians. We are stressed out of our minds. Like I can't even sleep at night because I have $500,000 of school loans. And so I just married that. And I, you know, I want to take all that stress away from my clients. So I had to learn it. So the first year is 2000, end of 2012, beginning of 2013. I offered to get on the phone with probably 100 different residents and figure out how to do their loans. And during that process, I find you learn when you have the fire under your, when the fire is right under you is you can learn stuff a hundred times quicker than actually going to read it where you have to learn by case, actual cases going through it. And there's these residents knew I was just new. They said, I really, I want to really help you. And they were so grateful for it. And then after seeing so many examples through, and then I did read a bunch that I just learned it from scratch, to be honest. Just diving into it. Nothing like experiential learning to, to go deep. That's it. So how does that get reflected today when you're out like doing business development and trying to differentiate yourself in a in a crowded space? You know, how how are you talking about like getting referrals and differentiating and getting clients on board now? For physicians, I mean it's all this it's all the same stuff. Luckily we have really good word of mouth, not only in Pittsburgh but but nationally. So these these seminars are really good. A lot of times we'll have inbound calls. You know, Matt, we've we've heard great things from XYZ over here. We'd love to work with you. Are you still accepting new clients? That's obviously why my Matt Prolo is a lead advisor on our team. That's his primary focus and that's that's really gaining headway now. But yeah, just helping people with what they are stressed about, I think, is our biggest differentiator. We're not going in and leading with we're trying to sell disability insurance, we're trying to set up an investment account. We're really hearing them out and, and giving them an educational approach to guidance. Well, that to me is always one of the, the powerful things of just, you know, you said it so well, it's, it, it's just about helping people with what they're actually stressed out about, which, you know, I guess <laughs> wo- woe to a lot of us in the business and our, and our traditional products. Like I wish more underinsured people were up at three o'clock in the morning worrying about their lack of life and disability insurance 
but generally not the case unless they're unfortunately already sick or ill and then they're not going to be able to get the insurance. Like healthy people don't tend to be up at night worrying about disability and life insurance. And and frankly, most healthy people don't tend to be up at night worrying like I'm concerned I might have a 7% overweight to large cap and maybe I need to rebalance my portfolio. Like these these things that we do, and it's not that they're not valuable and important in what we do, but these don't keep people up at night, nor does like, I don't know anybody that ever wakes up in a cold sweat at 3 a.m. It's like, I have to get a financial plan. I'm just going to go online right now at 3 o'clock in the morning and find someone who can help me create a financial plan. Like this, It's just not the p- stuff that people actually stresses out about. I'm in student loan debt up to my eyeballs. Like that stresses people out. They're up about, they're up on that at three o'clock in the morning trying to figure out what the heck they're going to do. And there's pushback, obviously, because when I was first started doing this, and now there's no pushback because of the success that that's happened, but there's pushback where you're over, you're, you're not focusing on the right stuff. You're going to confuse people if you go over to information. But what I found happened is actually, if you're really interested in engaging with people and helping them with, their problems they have that they've clearly told you and not ignoring them, but making that the central focus of the financial plan. And then you're extremely transparent about all your, you know, how your fee structure works. If those two things are present, the third thing, I guess, take an educational approach. You're going to get to the same point on all those other subjects, the life, the disability, the wealth management, the maxing out Roths and 401ks, all that stuff's going to happen. But instead of it being an hour conversation, I find sometimes it's a 30-second conversation. Say, Matt, just tell us what we need to do. You need $2 million of term life insurance? Okay, let's do it. Here's a, here's a company to do disability with. That's great. I want to pull you out an illustration and say, Matt, I don't need to see that. Just tell me what to do. I trust you. That would never happen, though, if I led with that and said, you're really underinsured. We really need to talk about this. They, they're going to view you as a salesman and not the quarterback of their plan, not the trusted advisor. So I, I think the approach is so key that I buy embarrassingly enough trial and error over the years. But I couldn't be more convicted about that today. It's funny. I remember, I think like relatively early on in my business, MFS, uh, mutual fund company MFS, was was like really actively promoting this tool. I think they literally just called what keeps you up at night. And it was this like questionnaire tool process that you would go through with clients to literally just talk to them like what what keeps you up at night? What actually is worrying you in and and keeping you up at night so you can start facilitating having some of these these conversations and you know while being like young and early in the business at the time i remember looking at and and just sort of thinking like oh god that's a whole bunch of stuff that i don't really get paid to do like can can we talk about the stuff that i need to do to qualify my contract cuz you know that was that was the reality when you're in your first year or two in the business and you know, now that I've done planning for a whole lot longer and work with clients a whole lot longer, it's really drove home. Like, yeah, that's actually the only thing that really matters. All the other stuff that you do, like, yeah, I, clients need some of the other things as well. And eventually, I hope to get them there and get all the dots, all the boxes checked and the I's dotted and the T's crossed. But you have to start with what clients actually care about and are up at night about. And Often it's not the things that we are offering. Not that they don't need what we're offering, but if you start with what you're offering instead of what they actually care about and keep them up at night on, you know, you, you have to start with what matters to them if you actually want to connect and engage with them. I, I'm familiar with that brochure. It's a great brochure. So I'm I'm curious from the 
the broader perspective now, you know, Northwestern is a company that's taken a lot of flack from the industry over time. You know, I don't have to tell you there are some Northwestern agents who do not take the high road that you do around client-centric planning. And I, you know, to be fair, that's true at a lot of companies, but the sheer size of Northwestern means they they tend to get more visible by by the volume alone. So like how do you look at it or think about it as someone that is become increasingly planning centric at a company that's still at the end of the day, like they're a life insurance manufacturer. That's their primary business line. They do some of this other stuff as well, but that's the roots and and where they're built. Like, is that just a, a comfortable environment because that's what you've grown to? Do you view it as, no, I still like the strength of having Northwestern's resources behind me. And, and I just deal with the fact that there's some other agents at my firm who happen to be knuckleheads. Like, how do you think about the the large firm environment? That's saying it politely. The knucklehead is uh, saying it politely, Michael. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and it's it's a, to be you know completely transparent. I mean, it is a struggle, right? There's blogs, especially that are focused on physicians that are not happy with Northwestern Mutual and and certain practices. So it's at certain points, it's been mentally a struggle say, well, could I build this twice as quick if I was in my own RAA? And maybe, maybe the answer is yes. I don't know. But my thought process right now is it's not, it's not about money. I think I could do much better if I was getting a 100% payout versus a 73% payout. I think the Ray Dalio said it really good in his book, Principles. He found out that the most meaningful life is if you have meaningful relationships with good people and you do meaningful work. And I'm able to do meaningful work here and I'm also have very meaningful relationships with certain people. So I can't say there haven't been struggles. I can also say that there, there's been a tremendous support system. I don't know if I could have built from scratch at other firms, you know, like uh, other firms. I think you start as a junior advisor. If you do it that way, you're going to end up in a good spot, but you don't have the equity. You don't have the control. You don't have the autonomy of, of building the practice exactly like you want. So that's something I think the autonomy and, being able to do exactly what I want to do is, is is important. I think the other advantage here is the disadvantage that you just mentioned, which is a true disadvantage, there's no question, is also an advantage to for me. So for example, there's a lot of older reps that are insurance agents. They're not credentialed, they're not and they're tremendous guys, but they they just grew up in a system where it was insurance only. But they have Surprisingly enough, some of their clients view them as the the most trusted part of their team because they've the system is you go meet with them every six months, whether there's a sale or not, you develop the relationship. So these relationships I've cultivated with some of the really good people here, they're now taking me on to see some of these top clients that their insurance needs have been solved for ten years, right? But they've still been meeting them and now we're we're talking about taking over the investments. And so we've been able to do that at a very high ratio meet really, really good people. So I'd say that's the the main advantage that I can think of is you know partnering with some of the other reps that have traditionally just done insurance and now they're asking me to come and help their clients out from the full financial planning spectrum, which is pretty cool. So one of the virtues of being the more comprehensive planner in a firm where not everyone is comprehensive is essentially you you've you've got a bunch of internal referral opportunities now from other agents at the company who just don't want to go do what you're doing, but they want you to do what you're doing for their clients in a joint capacity. Exactly. Exactly. So 
you know, I've, I've got to ask because it, it just is so out there in the conversation these days, you know, the, the world of DOL fiduciary and conflicts of interest. You know, you had commented earlier that you thought DOL fiduciary was, was a positive step forward. Much of the industry and particularly much of the large firms have not, you know, the, the major insurance companies were, were all working together with NAFA in lawsuits to try to stop DOL fiduciary. So as, as someone that has built a planning centric firm within an insurance agency, like, do you, do you feel like there are a lot of conflicts to be a financial planner in that environment or does it just not impact you because you're doing enough business? They leave you alone or all the above. Again, I'm believe there's nothing, there's no route to go other than transparency. I, you know, hopefully this impacts a lot of people in a positive light, but you know, I feel both. There's, I think the DOL is the best thing that ever happened in the industry because I've, I've, the activity I've done, I've seen a lot of bad planning out there. I've seen a lot of, you know, things I view should be lawsuits. So I think the getting rid of the commission based on anything investment related is, is huge. I couldn't be a bigger advocate for that. I pray that happens for the insurance side as well. Because right now I have to explain to clients, any insurance planning, we're paid a commission by the company that we go through, whether it's Northwestern or not. And we have no, we, we do enough insurance business because obviously physicians do need a lot of insurance that hitting minimums. I mean, we're, we're 10 times over those, right? So never, we never feel like we have to sell something. There's always going to be enough business on the table. I can tell you from a, a grid perspective of how you know you're building your investment grid that is now tied to the insurance. Some people at Northwestern are a big fan of that. I personally am not a big fan of that. It's positively affecting me right now. So so functionally the the pay like your payout rate on your investment side is partially tied to how much insurance production you're also doing. Exactly. Exactly. So, so in a, in a world that you happen to have a niche of young physicians who both start accumulating money and actually need at least some term life and some disability and may actually find it appealing to add in some whole life as well because they really do have the disposal do- disposable dollars to add to that with half a million plus of income. Like that happens to fit for you. But I guess may, may be a problem if you end up being even more financial planning and investment based and less insurance based at some point down the road. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. And so I think the, I haven't thought it through 100% yet. I, that concept makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable because I think there is a conflict of interest there. But as you said, the company, it's flagship. They're, they've been an insurance company since 1800s, right? So they, a lot of people have found that investments have been so successful that so many people are just focusing on that now inside the system. We have a lot of producers you know, nationally recognized in the Barron's Top 400 or whatever that's called, Financial Times Top 400. And so they're like, wait a second, we're not making much money off this. We need these big guys, which used to be big insurance producers. We need them to still do a minimum amount of insurance. I think that's what they're trying to do. Obviously, they're prerogative, but it's it's obviously a a frustration with an advisor trying to build out a, a planning centric firm, as you've as you mentioned. So, so from your perspective, like it's it's not as though there's a bunch of like direct pressure from managers of like sell more company products, sell more company products, sell more company product. It's just hey, we've got some compensation grids, and you know they've been designed in a way that kind of nudges you towards at least a certain level of company product and and that may or may not be an issue. Yeah, I th- I think on a, it's a case by case basis. You know, like I could have been 5% higher 
instead of 73, I could be at 78 right now if I had placed a lot of insurance business inside the Northwestern system. But we find it was in the best interest because certain clients were older that we did you know, some very big cases outside of the Northwestern system. So I think that could have been a conflict of interest if we had said, let's place those policies inside just so we can get a higher grid. Well, no, we looked at what was in the best interest of the client. So I, I think that's where I, I have a little bit of hesitancy where I think that grid could be a conflict of interest is because of that. And I'm looking at that and I'm kind of shrugging my shoulders, 5%, who cares, right? I, I live a simple life. We, I, I pay my staff very, very well. They're, they're tied into the upside of our business, so they're all happy. I view them as partners, not staff. I shouldn't say staff. But yeah, long, long term, I think that could become an issue. I mean, it's an interesting tension for even the insurance companies. I know on the one end, like their core business and their and their bread and butter is manufacturing and distributing insurance products. So at some point, if the majority of your advisors that are supposed to help distribute your product don't distribute your product, it kind of messes with your with your business model. But right, you know, they, right. they do participate in your insurance business. They are a broker dealer as well. It's a growing segment of their business. A bunch of you guys have very large investment-based practices now, like your capitalist in me still looks at this and says, like, I don't think they actually want to drive all of you away if you're not also doing a certain amount of company product. I'm sure they're still, I'm sure you're still reasonably profitable for them, I'm going to bet. They're figuring that out because, they, I mean, some of our top producers have left. When I started, the top guy went to LPL. And so, that you know, that's happened. Mass Mutual is recruited heavily. The boy, why would we train people? We can just pay Northwestern reps a big upfront number and get them over here. So, yeah, they're they're figuring that out of how to keep keep the best people around. So, having gone down this path of of starting in a Northwestern Mutual sales role and then kind of building your your depth and your expertise over time, and you know, we hadn't, we hadn't really talked about it much along the way, but I I know like. You have your CFP marks and your CHFC, and you did the RACP program. So you've gone pretty deep compared to most advisors on just the the training and education side to to move into this full scale financial planning activity that you do with clients now. So as you look at it, as someone that's on this path, like, do you still think this is the right path for how we bring people into the financial advisor world, or should we be doing it differently? Like, would you recommend your path to others having gone down it successfully? I would recommend it for someone that needed a personal journey like I did. I've been through, you know, a lot of adversity in my life, as everyone has, you know. But I think there was, it was extremely healthy for me to develop as a person, to go through the amount of adversity I did personally. And then also, you know, obviously most of that was professionally. So I think that was good. But as far as, is everyone going to keep people at the best interest? And that's something I strive for every day. No. So I, I think that the best path moving forward is going to be for the, the best talent to, to join established practices and build up their book like that. Get the, get the designations before you go talk to 100 people by yourself, shadow people. So the answer is, if it, it was at my... Now we're expecting our first child in October. I'm just thinking, you know, hopefully she'll be interested in joining this field because I'm very passionate about it. But I would want her to have a completely different experience than I did. So I think joining a team and, and building up the credentials, building up the knowledge base, building up the is important. But I, I still think there should be some fire thrown under, especially the you know, millennials, because they've gotten enough bad rap. And I guess technically I'm I just turned 30, so I'm a millennial. 
I think there's a certain part of it where it's healthy to feel pressure. It's really healthy to, to get on the phone and call people out of the blue. It develops a lot of personal skills. But at the same time, we, we need to make sure that as you develop, that every advisor in the industry is incentivized to do what's in the best interest of the client as well. So I think, I think there's a happy medium between the two. So where does it go for your advisory practice from, from here? You've said you've, you've got this focus on growth, you're staffing for, for growth, you're already having this phenomenal growth year, adding almost $250,000 of, revenue, of new revenue for the year. Like where, where do you look going forward from here? Where are you trying to get to next? Yeah, I guess the the question you're probably when we come back to this is, you know, how how do I find define success? Because at this point, I could my simple lifestyle, I could sit back and just let's keep the people we have in place, and let's keep the clients we have in place, and let's do like a lifestyle practice. I have zero interest in that. If I'm very wired, as you can probably tell the way I'm talking, how animated I am. There's nothing I like more than impacting other people and growing. And so I think I, I've been trying to figure that out. But the goal we have right now that we're very clear on is going to do a billion dollars under management. And that's not to be to be able to have a big ego and say, oh, we've got a billion dollar management. I just view that as very few advisors are able to do that. In fact, in the Carson Cell Conference, I think just over 600 firms in the country have that. So I think that's a very good mark. And I think the reason we want to get there is not for revenue. It's not because of we want to be compared to other people. It's be simply because if we're doing the right planning for people and we're focusing on the clients first, that is the minimum we should be able to do in 10 years. We should be able to grow 30% compounded growth year over year or 10 years, which is going to happen for anyone that's truly keeping clients' best interests at heart and truly keep people's getting their stress off their plate. That people are going to clone themselves. They're going to tell you about their friends and families. I think that billion-dollar mark is just a good litmus test that we're doing good planning. So that's the vision in the next 10 years. That'll put me at 39 at that point, right before 40. That's the goal. And then you know, we want to have every person on our team outside of a couple administrative people to have the CFP. So now is the main insurance guru. He's getting the main investment guru. He is taking a CFP next month. He's already passed one of the classes. And then right after that, he's starting a CFA. Grace has already started her CFP. Matt is taking the CFP test. So we want everyone to be CFP and, and more credentials and just have a good a Kaizen environment. I think that's a Japanese term for continuous self-improvement. Very cool. And and are you continuing to commit into this physicians and and retirees niche? Like, Do you envision going all the way to a billion in, in just these, these core two niche areas and, and just going deeper into them? Or are you going to go broader at some point? Or are you going to go narrower even to some subset of them? We're never going to turn a client away just because they don't fit in the niche. Because I mean, we obviously have some big, bigger clients, like over six million, that don't fit into that category. But I think we'll be able to get there just with the physicians and retirees. Just because if we look at the dollar cost averaging that's happening in the physicians, I think it's over half a million dollars a month right now that just physicians are contributing to. There's no better thing a client can do, I think, than just save money, save money, build that discipline. So that's occurring. We'll get new physicians that'll commit do- monthly dollar, and then the retirees is really just a matter of, you know, maintaining their principle and their peace of mind while they enjoy their best life. And I, I have a couple, if we have time, a couple key things I think you can do to differentiate yourself with retirees. That, especially for someone in their twenties, because this is when I started working with retirees, of how to attract those kind of people to work with you. Yeah, I love love to hear it. Like, how are you? I know we focus more on the physician end, but how are you? differentiating with retirees as well? 
So we've used the Mount Everest analogy. The other analogy or study, I heard this at a Northwestern meeting, was very helpful. I, apparently, there was a study of like 20 kids put on a playground that it was just a wide open field. There was no fence around the playground. And what they found is these kids, because it was so much space, they stuck to the playground. Not They went within like a 20-foot radius of the playground. That's it. Then a, a different test group of kids, they put on a playground, there was like a 100-yard radius fence around it. And what they found with these kids is that they explored every square foot of that playground in the, in the yard, right? Because the, the fence was there, they felt comfortable exploring those boundaries. So that's the analogy I love with retirees because a lot of people, we talked about the saving, 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 and just the psychological aspect of not saving is hard enough, let alone using the money they have saved. So we try to create, we first obviously do a stress test and, and look at it. Are you okay? We second then do a second plan always. We always do a one plan of here's where you're at today. I learned this from the CFP. If you never met us, here's how you stand. The second plan is, okay, if we're in your shoes, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. And then beyond that, we're trying to create that fence for them and figure out, well, you said you want to live off this much, but unless they want to die the richest person in the graveyard, you know, we would encourage you to go to explore more. Here's why we think you can do this. And, you know, Instead of gifting when you die, you should be gifting while you're living. But you can control good habits in your children. So that's one of the analogies we use to kind of frame the whole process. But some of the big things, I think most advisors at these big, not to pick on any firms, like a lot of firms like Merrill Lynch and UBS and Morgan Stanley have been tremendous advisors on the accumulation standpoint. But when I meet with these people in their 60s, I say, what's your philosophy for distribution you know what's what fail safes do you have in place if the if we have a 2008 and they just give me a blank stare and say we've never talked about distributing money i don't even know if my advisor does that and i say well most advisors don't and the average age of a financial advisor is 57 so you're going to need someone that's going to be here for you during the most important time of your career so in that second plan, that this is kind of framing, opening up the minds of the client to be open to a conversation. And then how we provide value is typically we find most money is inside of pre-tax environment, whether that's a profit sharing, a traditional IRA, or a 401k. So let's just use an example of someone has $3 million, a million in a non-qualified account, and then $2 million in a pre-tax environment. And let's say this these kind of clients want to live off of a hundred thousand a year. And so a married couple has social security of fifty a year. We're telling them obviously to delay it as long as possible unless they have health concerns. One of the ways we differentiate is we know every strategy there is around social security, claim now, claim more later. If you've been widowed, if you've been all that kind of stuff, I think that's the biggest way you can differentiate yourself and just know your social security and Medicare inside and out. But going back to my example where you have two million qualified, one million non qualified. And they want to live off 100000 a year. Well, that person, once they turn 70, if Social Security is giving them 50 and they've, let's say they've had a pension giving them 30, that's 80, their 401k is probably worth three or $4 million by the time they reach 70. The RMDs off of that is going to jump to 120. So now they're, now they're at 200. They don't need 200, but they're showing 200. And now they're kicked in a higher Medicare bracket, a higher tax bracket. If one of them dies, their tax bracket jumps 8 or 10% depending on what their total income is. And so I found no other advisors talking about these, their Medicare tripling if they show too much income or their, their taxes going way up if there's a, a widow situation. No one talks to them about the required distributions. And 
the market could be jumping up and down. They could be forced to sell at a low point. So huge component of when it makes sense to do some Roth conversions, obviously, which offset all the risks I just talked about. And that doesn't make sense for everybody, but we find that's a conversation that hasn't been had that a lot of people are in the retirement. If they're retiring at 63, they have seven years that they're going to be in their lowest tax bracket that they've ever been in for the last 20 years. And doing some slow Roth conversions could solve a lot of these a lot of these problems. So that's our way in the door. And then a lot of times after that, you know, we show the value proposition through not only the technical side, but also on the, the coaching side and kind of the fence analogy I just used. And we've been able to create some good partnerships with clients in that regard. So for young advisors that are coming in today, right, and going through these similar challenges of how do I how do I differentiate, how do I establish my credibility as as someone that did that, you know, through your advisory career, through your twenties, like any advice to other advisors in their twenties about you know, what they should do, or even think things you see them do that they probably shouldn't be doing in this challenge of like, how do you get credibility and differentiate as a young advisor? Yeah. Take a, take a Colby test. That's what my, one of my first coaches helped me with Alyssa and figure out how you operate. What's your modus operandi. I'm, I'm a high fact finder, high follow through for those that are familiar with that test and set up your environment so that you're able to thrive. Right. But a lot of advisors are going to be quick starts. Are you familiar? Are you familiar with the Colby test, Michael? Yep. Yep. Very familiar. Okay. So most advisors are quick starts. So my advice would be, you are going to be miserable if you try to go super technical, like, like Michael, you do, right? You're, you're probably the highest fact finder in the world. I mean, it's amazing the content you put out. Yes. I am a very long fact finder in the contest. <laughs> Absolutely. I could have guessed that. So you thrive in that environment. Most advisors aren't. So my advice would be, if you're a fact finder and follow through, set up your environment and go learn the stuff because you're just going to do so well. And if it's something you're really passionate about, if you're a quick start though, be a really good relationship person, be a really good fact prospector, and don't try to do this by yourself because the stakes are too high. The worst thing you can do is miss these details and not do what's in the best interest of your client. So partner up with a good fact finder, partner up with a good follow through, ideally someone that has both of those in the financial planning world. So I guess two different sets of advice is figure out what you are, be true to yourself, and then let yourself thrive. Hmm. And and find out partner or another person that does the other part of whatever you're bad at. I guess that's, that's opposite of you. To it. Yep. Exactly. So so as we wrap up here, you know, this is a podcast about success, which means very different things to different people. And so you know, you've alluded to some of this already, but as someone that's built this incredibly successful practice through your twenties and now coming up in, into your 30s to grow from here, but have said, you know, it's it's really not about the the money and the revenue at this point. How do you define success for yourself? So it's a a very good question. I've pondered that ever since episode two because you've asked pretty much every person that you've ever interviewed, which I've listened to most of the interviews through your podcast. So through a lot of thought, I think success is reaching my potential. You know, the God given potential that has been given to me will enjoy the journey. During that process is also drawing others naturally to reach their potential. So I, I think, you know, someone like a Ron Carson, he inspires the industry, right? Someone like you inspire the whole industry. So not only reaching your potential, but doing it in a way that you inspire others along the way. 
there's a concept of drive and draw. You can drive people to action. You can draw people to action. So I want to do that in a complete draw environment where people are, you know, inclined to take your advice or inclined to, to view you as the ultimate guide, Michael, of like financial advice. That That's what I want to do in my practice and who I surround myself with and my clients. It's just everyone around me reach their potential. That's how it defines success, but doing it in a, in a work-life balance. So obviously I'm, I'm not running a lifestyle practice. I work very, very hard, but instead of running at 80 to hundred hours a week, you know, 60 hours a week for me working is like I'm on vacation. So I think that's a good, keep those boundaries for myself and for those around me is we, we need to enjoy the, the journey and not just put our head down too much. Well, amen. And, you know, especially now that you've got a little one coming on the way in, in October, you've got a, a whole different stage of that journey in finding work-life balance. I've, I've, I've lived that challenge myself over the past couple of years. It is a different stage in the journey, but a very good one. Couldn't be more excited. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing this story and path on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks all for uh, what you do as well. This has been phenomenal listening to all these podcasts you've done. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Happy to be of service. I hope it helps. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.